0: All right, as we uh, get to God's Word here, if you've got a a Bible handy, and I hope you do, there's one in the pew if you don't, then we'll be turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, we just finished up chapter 1. Now, we always want to make mention of the fact that these chapter divisions were not there when the Apostle Paul wrote the letter, these were added later. But if there was ever an example of where a chapter break was put, In the right place, it's here because Paul has given this first chapter as an introductory uh, matter, if you will, a prayer, an introduction to the letter, and now he gets into the main body of the letter. Now, many scholars say if you can identify kind of a main body to this letter, it it is here. It seems to be the focus of the letter, and so we want to look at it. We looked at chapter 1 over six weeks, and it had much to say about Paul's prayers for the Thessalonian church, the believers' amazing growth in their faith, And the idea, if you will, of God's eschatological or end days judgment. And Paul had much to say about how even those lines are drawn in the present or made evident in the present through the token of persecution. Paul says, if you doubt there are enemies of God, if you doubt there are people at war against the gospel in the church, he said, just look at what's going on in your day. And my friends, we live in a similar day. Maybe not as bad, obviously, as what was going on in Thessalonica, but there are lines drawn. We can recognize that. And Paul says it's a token, an evident token in the present of this truth at the eschaton that God's people shall be gathered unto glory and the enemies of God shall be gathered unto everlasting destruction. And again, if you noticed, I mentioned uh, in our catechism, to, to pay careful attention to it today, that's what it says there, right? How does... Christ execute the office of king. It's not only in subduing his people, protecting his people, but also in judging his enemies. And so, my friends, uh, we see it there as well. As we continue on, we're going to move into the second chapter today because we want to recognize that this church is troubled and confused. Troubled and confused. Now, they were when Paul wrote the first letter. They were troubled and confused, and now they're troubled and confused again. And so we see a kind of recurrent theme here with the Thessalonians. Outstanding young believers, but they're having some issues with where to stand. And uh, we're going to look at that today. As we think about all that's been said in the first chapter to set the table for this second chapter, we want to recognize that even today we're just setting the the table for this chapter again with this introductory two verses to the chapter. There's much to be said here about... Uh, the return of Christ and the man of sin, the Antichrist, and and all of these things, the great apostasy of that day. We're going to be getting into that really starting next week. Today we want to look at what Paul says here by way of just entering into the second chapter because there is something very important said here. So let's read it again. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto Him, we ask you, Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at two points quickly this morning. First of all, a hopeful and familiar theme. A hopeful and familiar theme. And second of all, a stable and unshakable position. A stable and unshakable position. Now, just as a word of preparation, the hopeful and familiar theme is going to be this glorious day of Christ's return, this parousia of Christ, this appearing, glorious appearing of Christ, and this stable and unshakable position is where you need to stand. Not be shaken, not be tossed to and fro as these Thessalonian believers have been. So beginning first with a hopeful and familiar theme, we want to notice that as we come out of Chapter 1, we come into the second chapter, and Paul has much to say to us. He says, Now, brethren, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, he doesn't leave us to wonder what he's going to be talking about. He tells us right from the beginning, all the preparation leads to this moment of now. And this word can mean now or but in this context, it clearly means now. Now, having said all of that, let's get to the point, brothers and sisters. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul has something important to be said. Now, we would immediately remember what Paul has said about this to this church already. And he said a great deal. We have some in the first letter to the Thessalonians, but also Paul had clearly spoken to them about this when he was there for two or three or maybe even four weeks. Paul had said much about it. If you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter 4 of First Thessalonians for just a second. Now, we're not going to fully exposit this again. You can go back and listen to the recording on it if you'd like to, if you want more details. But again, we want to look at just briefly what Paul said. He immediately states here that he doesn't want believers to be ignorant. This is verse 13, by the way, of of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, if you remember just to briefly mentioned this Paul was dealing with the fact that in Thessalonica some people had been believing that it was going to happen soon and all would live to see that day and now some have passed away some have been killed or have died what of them have they missed out on the hope and that's the question Paul wants to answer he says that they haven't missed out on anything if you read it he gives the answer to put it in in kind of the Notes version he says listen On that day the dead in Christ shall rise first, they shall be resurrected on that day, and then we with them shall go to meet the Lord at His coming in the air. So Paul says that's the events. The the dead in Christ have missed nothing. In fact, they really have the first action. They are raised on that day. And we look back at 1 Corinthians 15 and all that Paul had to say about this. But again, Paul is answering them and saying they haven't missed out. I don't want you to misunderstand this or be ignorant of it. I also don't want you to be sorrowful or without hope as the pagans are. Paul says you're beginning to treat death the same way the world does, as hopeless, as depressing. Now, of course, death brings a temporal sadness to us as we lose someone we love. But Paul says, unlike the world, we have a hope that transcends that, that goes beyond the temporary a hope that we will all be gathered together in the eschaton, all together. And Paul says, so don't be shaken, don't be, don't be uh, doubtful of this, but hold on to this great hope that we're given in Christ. It's amazing because it would seem this letter did its job. For a time, they begin to feel better, everything seems to be good. And then somewhere, some contrary teaching comes in to play. It seems Paul isn't quite sure even where it came from. Look at uh, what he says here. Now we're going to get past this shaking in mind because I want to deal with that in just a moment. But he says here, either by spirit, that would be prophecy. In this case, false prophecy. Some false prophet comes in and says, no, you're not understanding Paul, right? Or he says, I've got a whole nother revelation. Uh, but this is not accurate. And you can continue from there. Or by word, this is proclamation, a preacher or somebody speaking forth, or by letter. And what's interesting about this letter is Paul says, as if from us. Does that mean that somebody had forged a letter in Paul's name and sent it to this church? We're not sure. But Whatever the case, somewhere along the line, false information had crept in that had shaken the people of God. The work that Paul had done in easing their fears, easing their discomfort was now washed away as they've been convinced of something. Well, what have they been convinced of? We'll look at the end of chapter, excuse me, of verse 2, and you'll see it. This letter, this word, this spirit, this whatever it was, had convinced them that the day of Christ had come. Now, this is the, the day of the Lord. We spoke about this in 1 Thessalonians on how Paul is tying these two things together. And so Paul is saying, this hasn't happened yet. It's evident it hasn't happened yet. Christ has not returned. The day of the Lord, this great day of eschatological judgment and salvation has not occurred yet. And he's going to explain it's not our purpose today on some events that must take place first. Paul in the first letter was saying, listen, it is coming soon. I mean, you can go back and read all that Paul says about it. It will come suddenly upon them. It will come as a thief in the night. And it may be that somebody just misproclaimed Paul's words and said, Paul's telling you it's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. And now Paul will work, as we'll see over the next few weeks, and say, no, there's some events that must take place first. Some things to look for. An apostasy, a, a coming man of sin. All these things must come to pass first. But Paul has a deeper concern here. I've given you this... Repeated teaching, both in person and by letter of the glories of this day, a, a thing that is supposed to be a comfort to the people of God, and yet you're constantly troubled, constantly upset, constantly shaken by these things. And so Paul wants to know why that is. Why are you shaken? Why do you not have somewhere firm to stand? Why is it that this word that should be a word of comfort to you has not been a word of comfort, but a reason for much shakiness in the truth so Paul has provided a familiar and hopeful theme but this theme has been abused by someone in order to use it to sow discord in the church and hopelessness within the people of God well that brings us to our second point this morning a stable and unshakable position Paul as I said is going to answer all the questions that they have as we move forward in this text or at least a lot of the questions I can't say he exhausts them but he answers many of them but there's something that we don't want to miss in these first two verses that speaks not only of the importance of this truth in the days of the Thessalonians, but in our own day. That we need to be recognize this biblical exhortation, a command of God for His people to not be quickly shaken. Not to be quickly shaken. And that's the wording that's used here. Not just shaken, not just blown to and fro, but quickly blown to and fro a question is answered, uh, a peace is found in that, and the next day the first thing it said, oh, I don't know, I don't know, blown to and fro. My friends, we need to recognize that this is not God's will for us, and in fact God tells us uh, that we should not be a people blown to and fro. You can see again that Paul had answered these questions in his first letter uh, to a large degree, and yet already they're hopeless again, already shaken again, already troubled again. And Paul says, this shouldn't be. You shouldn't be so easily shaken. This is not the only place where we read this, is it? This is a consistent theme throughout the Word of God, that God's people are to not be shaken easily. Paul has said it elsewhere, but the Bible says it elsewhere, uh, beyond just Paul's writings. You can look at just a few of these, and by the way, there are dozens. James 1.6, But let him ask in faith, With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Again, the idea of pushed to and fro, bounced around. Jude 1.12, and speaking of uh, these people who are apostates that Jude is speaking of, he says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding, feeding themselves, waterless clouds, they have nothing to offer, swept away by winds, again, you see this? Blown to and fro, swept away, not stable, no sure footing. Paul himself says in Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children. How does he describe children, spiritual children? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, my friends, to exposit the text we're looking at today, we could do a whole A complimentary sermon right there, couldn't we, on just that text in Ephesians. Because Paul says what it means to be a spiritual adult, a grown-up in the faith, means that you are not tossed to and fro. You're not here one day and over here the next day. You're not carried away by every wind of doctrine, every new idea, by human cunning and craft. You are not easily blown around. Well, my friends, that means we must have some stability in the Lord, right? And that is where we find our stability. Psalm 16.8 I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion which cannot be removed but abideth forever. Psalm 125.1 Proverbs 12.3 A man shall not be established by wickedness. In other words, I have no firm footing in wickedness. But the root of the righteous shall not be moved. And my friends, this is the same thing Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine and do them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these words of mine and does not do them shall be likened to a foolish man, which built his house upon sand. Shifting, right? And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Do you see there again the idea is where is our foundation? Is it in the constantly shifting sands of the world or is it on the solid rock of Christ? Because if we want to be able to stand steadily and have a sure and steady foundation, a stable foundation, We know where we need to place our foundation, on Him and in Him. So my friends, again, we see this throughout the Scriptures, that there is a command here that the people of God be unshakable, unshakable, stable, have a steady foundation. In Christ, we have a command not to be shaken, and we're given the basis for that steadiness, and that's in Christ and His truth. You know, one of the reasons the church needs to get back to expository preaching and theological teaching is This has been lost along the way. We need to be honest about this. The people of God can't know where to stand if they don't know what the Word says. And that's not just the responsibility of the church, although it is a responsibility of the church, to preach the Word and teach the Word. But it's our own responsibility to be in the Word, in our own lives, in our own time, to to know what it says. How can we be a people of the book if we don't know what it says? How can we know where to stand if we don't know where we're told to stand? And so we see this in what Paul is saying today. So many believers today don't know what they're supposed to believe, and so they're susceptible to being blown to and fro by every uh, wind of change in the world. Uh, You may know that Ligonier puts out a state of church and theology every few years that's a survey of Christians on where they stand. And uh, this year's was troubling, as they always are. Uh, They survey the general population and self-described evangelicals, and they ask them, Questions, just to get a feel for where we're at as a people. And uh, often we'll see that the answers that evangelicals give are not all that different from what the world gives. This year, one of the highlighted questions was uh, We accept Jesus as a great teacher, but he was not God. And you have to strongly agree, agree, not sure, disagree, or strongly disagree. And I think the general population, it was like close to 50 50, and evangelicals, I think, 33% agreed with the statement only 66% stood where historic Orthodox Christianity stands a third of self-professed evangelicals said Jesus was not God now how does that happen how does that happen well I would dare you to go on YouTube or go on your televisions and watch most church services today and how little truth is proclaimed in these services anymore just you know how can we make your life a little bit better How do you deal with a problem at the baseball field? We've got to get to some serious things on Sunday morning. We've got to talk about some serious things. We don't have much time up here. And so it's not time to talk about how to have the best birthday party you can have. How can you have a godly birthday party? We don't have time to waste on stuff like that. And so, my friends, we need to recognize that this is a lot of the problem the church is in today. Nobody knows what the Bible is saying because it's not even being proclaimed on Sunday morning anymore. And so we need to recognize the importance of this, that we know what the Bible says, that we know where to stand. In fact, the term evangelical means almost nothing today. The term evangelical historically had a very definite meaning, that you believed in some of the key doctrines of the faith. But today, self-described evangelicals all over the place, so that the, the word means nothing today. And so, my friends, we need to recognize the importance of seeing what the Bible says and standing on it. How is the modern church getting tossed to and fro? And by the way, another question, just to make this point on how this is happening. Uh, One of the questions was, or I guess it's a statement, was that um, your gender identity is the product of your own decision. And I think it was like 22 or 23 percent agreed with that statement. Within the church, evangelicals, almost a quarter of evangelicals agreed that your gender identity doesn't come from your creation or from God, but from your own decision. Now, my friends, we're looking more and more like the world. That's what the world would say. The Bible clearly teaches that is not accurate. When the church begins to look like the surrounding world, when it refuses to identify sin, when it refuses to stand where the Bible stands, on what Christ has declared... It loses its power and testimony. You can see that. The church cannot stand apart from the world if it's just like the world. If we're blown to every idea that the the world holds to, the scriptures tell us over and over, Paul is telling us today, the true believer must know where to stand and must stand there unshakable and unmovable on the truths that God has given us. Now Paul is speaking about one particular point of doctrine here, isn't he? Don't be blown to and fro on these eschatological points. Don't be blown to and fro on the return of Christ and the day of the Lord. But this applies to many things, doesn't it? If they weren't standing on the doctrine of justification, Paul would say you need to stand firm. Oh, wait a minute. Paul did say that to the Galatians, didn't he? He said you were running well. Who tripped you up? You had it right. Why did you change what you were proclaiming and accepting? Listen, no matter Who comes to you with a different message than that which we preach? Do not accept it. If an angel comes with a contrary message, count them anathema. Paul is saying over and over again know where to stand and then stand there. Stand on those truths. And so Paul will instruct them, as he had in the first letter, that the message they are embracing now is false, it's wrong. Don't be shaken, don't be in fear. Don't believe what these false teachers are telling you. Hold fast to what we already taught you. That when Christ returns, you're going to know it. It's not going to be something easily missed. When he returns, his people will recognize it. And he explains exactly why that is, and we'll see more about it as we move forward. My friends, there's a principle here for the modern church. We need to see it. We need to know where we stand. We shouldn't be standing in a place that's easily shaken or driven by the world. You know, it's interesting, if you look at the rest of that, Paul says not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. And that word for troubled uh, actually means fearful. It is to be troubled, to be fearful over these things. And I wonder how much of our lack of standing firm today is driven by fear. Fear of what the world will think of us. Fear of what our friends will think of us. Fearful of what other people will think about our position if we stand firm to what the Bible teaches and proclaims. My friends, the Bible tells us over and over not to be a people driven by fear, but to be a people driven by faith, to stand where God has told us to stand, to trust in Him. I mean, we live in a generation that thinks it's up to us to save the gospel by repackaging it and marketing it. Can you just think for a minute how vain that is? To think that somehow the everlasting Word of God has lost its marketability? but I'm smart enough to save it, to rescue it, to repackage it and mark it in a way that it'll be more palatable to the public? It's the height of arrogance. And it's not true. It's not accurate. My friends, we are called to stand where God's Word stands, to proclaim what His Word proclaims. It is not obsolete. His Word will last forever. It's unshakable. So, my friends, we need to recognize that and stand in that truth. You can talk to... Uh, Many churches today, and if you talk to church leaders, you'll see this. They won't directly say, well, we've got to repackage the, the church or repackage the gospel, but they'll talk about finding a way to make it more palatable, finding a way to make it more acceptable to the public. And there might be within some reason uh, that you could think that, but ultimately, ultimately we have to stand on what the Word of God says. Ultimately, I've seen over and over that the people that start down that path end up corrupting ultimately the gospel end up corrupting it we've got to be careful about such things my friends we're not salesmen we're not salesmen right we proclaim the word as it is written as it's proclaimed and we trust the holy spirit to do his work we trust the holy spirit to do his work Uh, i'm not uh, going to find a way to bring conviction to you i'm just going to proclaim the word it says that the holy spirit's work is to bring conviction to you in your heart and so, my friends, we need to quit overestimating our own abilities and proclaim the Word in season and out of season. We need to teach the people of God the truth, teach them the Word of God, teach them the Scriptures, teach them the doctrine that's been handed down to us. And if we do that, we can stand unshakable, unshakable. In fact, we will stand unshakable if we do that and trust in God. So having mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, having mentioned all of that, I want to close by pointing something out that's found in this text. I thought this was really interesting. If you look at that first verse of chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, the return of Christ, and then Paul says, and our gathering together with him. This word for gathering is a very rare word uh, in the New Testament. The the word in Greek here is very rare in the New Testament. And in fact, it's found only a couple of times. One of the places it's found uh, is in Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says not to neglect the gathering of the Lord's people. It's kind of interesting, it makes you think for a moment about uh, that word being used there by Paul, also being used by the author of Hebrews, and the kind of relationship of our gathering as the people of God, together for worship on the Lord's day, as a picture of the gathering of all of God's people together on that day. You know, there's a lot of controversy Uh, recently, uh, you all know, with Grace Community Church and John MacArthur uh, saying the people of God must gather together. They must gather together. I think this is pretty good ammunition for that, don't you? Because, again, the two authors here, Paul and the author of Hebrews, use the same word, a rare word, to describe the gathering of the Lord's people temporally and also in the eschaton. We mentioned recently that as we worship now, should be informed by how we'll worship in the eschaton. And I think again here we see that. As God will one day gather all His people together, the living and the dead, the the dead raised first, and then all of us call up to meet Him in the air, that that gathering of all the saints of God is pictured even in our gathering here today. As we gather as the people of God, the community of God, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, the gathering of the assembly of the people of God. What we're doing in micro here will in macro happen on that day when all God's people are called together. as a great assembly. My friends, that's an amazing day, and I look forward to it. I hope you do as well.